Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Walton and today I'm taking a look at a book that examines the ideas that have shaped the formation of the European Union, from the immediate post-war period to this time of stress, strain and probable change. The book is called The Passage to Europe, How a Continent Became a Union, and the author is Luke van Middelaar, who, in his day job, also manages to be a speechwriter for the President of the European Council, Herman van Rompuy. The book has been published in Dutch for several years, but it's only just come out in English. Here's the interview. Well, joining me here in London is Luke van Middelaar, the author of The Passage to Europe, How the Continent Became a a Union. Uh, You're in London for a day or two. Uh, Thanks for dropping into ECFR's office. And also, can you just tell us about the book and how you came to write it? Yeah, thanks, Nicholas. Well, The Passage to Europe is perhaps an un-Brussels book about European integration and how it evolved and came about in, in 60 years, where I try to look at European history from the perspective of uh, experience and historic events, which were major turns in what happened to Europe, like the start, 1950s, like 1989, like the current crisis, where each time you see big decisions are taken as a result or as a response to historic events. And this is a way of looking at it which is fairly normal for a historian anyway, but it maybe stands a little bit apart from a lot of the literature on the European Union, where either you have the sort of Brussels-focused EU prose acronym-filled type of literature focusing on the institutions and the treaties. Almost an organisational chart being put yes, together in front of your eyes. A, a full of diagrams and, and, and arrows and how it all fits together. And on the other hand, the more, well, let's say, uh, Eurosceptical frame where it's all, which is quite close in a way, uh, where it's all about them in Brussels and all the events coming about as a result of a Brussels plot of, of Eurocrats who are aiming for power grab and all that kind of uh, prose, whereas what I try to show is that the main moments of passage or the main transformative moments of, of European politics in the past decades and, and where I'm in one currently have come about also as a result of national leaders sitting around the table and concluding, sometimes to their disliking, that they have to work together to do certain things to secure the security and the prosperity of their citizens. It's very much a, a work of political philosophy as well. When I was reading it, I was, I was struck by how different it, it reads compared to many books that, that deal with the process of integration and how Europe became a continent. You are a political philosopher at heart, aren't you? Yes, uh, for me it's deeply a, a work of political philosophy where I try to ask questions about what is authority, what is foundation, what is representation, and in a way almost have Europe as as a perfect object. So it's not a, a, a book about 
such uh, contemporary issues or in academic discourse about multi-level governance or democratic deficit. No, it's uh, tried to ask sort of the underlying political questions. And in a way, um, just like I'm zooming out in, in, in time by taking a long-term perspective to get a better grip of what's going on now, it's also a little bit zooming out in, in, in the conceptual uh, framework and trying to the core questions of, of, of political philosophy and there I prefer to rely on people like John Locke or Machiavelli who were not who still could ask the sort of first elementary questions when they were thinking about the political realities of their age and I think we, sh we should aim to do the same thing when we look at all the very confusing and complex things that are happening before our eyes and zoom out also in that respect. Can you summarise the type of narrative that you put together in the book? I, I mean, I, I've been reading it, and, and it is quite complex. And there's a, there's a lot of twist turns, and there's a lot of allusions to uh, to, to uh, the work of other people, as you've just said. And and it's quite a complex picture. But I was wondering if you're able to distill it in a way that that you know takes up a few minutes. Well, for one thing, I have not written a chronological history of the European Union from 1950 to today. Because for me that doesn't make sense. In a way I tell three different stories, which all of them can be made a little bit simpler. One is about, and they're all about does European politics exist and what does it look like? But they ask three different questions. So the first question, the first part of the book also is, is about decision-making, and there I focus on the majority vote between member states, which may sound a technical issue, procedural issue, which, which is also very much an existential issue, because when you're a member of a club where you can be outvoted, where you can be in a minority, it is a very different engagement from being a member of a club where you have your say whatever happens. You tie this uh, into the foundation of it. Uh, it's it's you know, part of the foundation. The, the giving up of sovereignty and you need the mechanism that yeah. translates that into... So it was built into the treaties, but to make it happen was uh, or resulted actually in one of the main, a little bit forgotten, but uh, enormous institutional, constitutional crises in the early days in 1965-1966, which is called the empty chair crisis because France, one of the six then member states walked off the table and did not want to be part of the club anymore. Six months later, they came back. But at the time, this, this was seen as, as disruptive a moment, say, as Brexit or Brexit of today. It was um, People thought it was the end of the project as they knew it, that it was as bad as anything that had happened in Europe since, since Hitler, some of them said. And I see that this sort of convulsive moment was very much related to this uh, issue of majority voting. So that's, that's the first uh, train of thought to look at. Is this body, is this club of member states able to take decisions? Now, the second way into the story is, and that's, that's the only chronolo really chronological part, is to look at the developments in relationship with big events in the outside world, with geopol geopolitics in a way. 
So there, look at the moment of foundation uh, as a result of the start of the Cold War in the 1950s. The Suez Crisis, which at a key moment of the negotiation for the common market back in 55, 56, it was actually a fascinating meeting at the day uh, of the uh, Suez Crisis between uh, German Chancellor Adenauer and French Prime Minister Moulet that all the obstacles and bureaucratic hurdles were cleared all of a sudden. Because in the geopolitical context then of sort of uh, colonial decline as it all of a sudden became clear when, when France and, and, and the UK were humiliated by the US and the Soviet Union over, over Suez. Adenauer said, and now we must make Europe. And then the train, as it were, moved forward or the decision were taken. I talk about 1989 as the key moment, the moment when the Berlin Wall fell, which was perhaps yeah, the most transformative moment in post-war European history, um, which not only resulted in the reunification of Germany, but in a way also of some kind of reunification of the European continent, with other countries joining the club, and when Europeans for the first time again rediscovered themselves as Europeans in a in a totally new way. And in all these events, the question each time is whether the member states as, as, a, as a club were able to react to them, to respond to them, to this contingency, jointly or not. Sometimes they were totally unable. For instance, in the 1970s, during the oil crisis, it was just uh, disastrous. Everybody had his own say. The Iraq war is, of course, a more recent example. But sometimes the external pressure of events pushed them into the same uh, direction. And this external pressure also had some institutional um, changes as, as a result. And in particular, the slow uh, coming about of a new institution, which is the European Council, or summits of heads of state and government, which was not foreseen in the initial setup of the EU machinery, because the founders, like Schumann and Monet, wanted to keep leaders out, national diplomacy out, because that smelled too much of old-style diplomacy, like uh, Versailles in 1919, or the conquest of Vienna after the Napoleonic Wars. They wanted a new start. But that type of diplomacy re-entered, in a way, uh, the scene, because um, the national leaders wanted to have a forum where they could discuss jointly, not, out, not only about agriculture policy and goat cheese, but also about real issues which mattered for them as European leaders, Cold War issue, what do we do about Soviet Union, how do we position ourselves vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States and that, that type of questions and where they felt they could not leave it to Brussels institutions, which they could for agricultural uh, policy, for instance, but not for those matters which were so important in the lives of their uh, states or their own nations. Now, and then there is the third part, which is maybe most topical today also, which is the question of how can this political want to be order, the European Union, find a relation to 
the people, through the citizens, taxpayers, students, consumers, whatever. How can you create a bond between the state and the street? That's a problem for any political order, but it's it's more difficult on the, on the European uh, uh, side. And I, I describe there um, three strategies which uh, have been tried and tested and some, some of them failed to, uh, to find the public or to find a, a consent or applause or however you want to frame it. That's the German, Roman and Greek methods. Yes, I, I use three sort of uh, historic references to describe them because mm-hmm. you're not referring here to to uh, Greece and Germany in the in the current context of the crisis. Mm-hmm. But indeed, the Greek, sorry, the, the German strategy of let's say stressing a common identity, a common belonging, in the tradition of 19th century German uh, mm-hmm. nationalist thinking or French state building is a little bit the like, which Europe has also tried and tested then the Roman strategy which focuses on on results and, and it, it's it's the Roman of bread and circuses Pax Romana and, and Monty Python. Python yes what yes. have you, the Romans you, ever done for us exactly that's the way that you frame that you know they've brought aqueducts, aqueducts. etc et peace well if you know etc so it's, it's basically yeah it, it's quite and then there's the the Greek strategy which uh, again refers not to uh, today's uh, Greece but to to the inventors of ancient democracy so the idea of making people relate more closely uh, to the whole enterprise by giving them a say a vote, Mm -hmm. a voice and there of course the the very existence of a European parliament uh, which is a totally unprecedented thing is a result of that strategy now, since the 1970s, roughly, they've all been tried and tested. There have been some successes in, in the way the European Union has, has found a public, but it's very difficult. Um, you can see it perhaps most clearly with the, the German identity road of, 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 of how can you make people feel themselves European? Because I mean, they all live on this nice little continent here um, of course they share a history but in almost all individual cases citizens have national or even regional identities which are much stronger than their um, European identity and, and it's very difficult to um, to define it it has been tried in the past and there are certain ideas which, which come back all the time one of them is wouldn't it be great if all students or school children in the European Union would um, be able to learn about European history in one European history textbook? Well, they they tried this uh, 20 years ago, and they, as these things go, they put together a committee of, of 12 historians. This was at the time of the European Union of 12 member states, and they each had to write one chapter. Seems simple. Seems simple, indeed. <laughs> then a whole sort of war of words uh, started about precise uh, semantic choices for instance in the chapter on the history of France the uh, historian wrote about 5th century Gaul and the barbaric invasions that took place which was not to the liking of the German historian who 
rather preferred the formula of Germanic invasions instead of barbarians. And the same spat, uh, by the way, occurred in the in the chapter on, on uh, I don't know which chapter, but anyway, between the uh, the Spaniard and the British historian about how to refer to the person called Francis Drake. Mm -hmm. was, was he a maritime hero or a pirate? And there you speaking as a Briton, I think he was both. But piracy <laughs> was almost under the crown at the time. But uh, yeah, well, that's that's a nice way to, to frame. It. But you, you can see that it's difficult to find a sort of neutral way of looking at this common history unless you go for, for the sort of motherhood and apple pie approach of universal values but then again that doesn't really distinguish the Europeans from, from others mm -hmm. so it is, uh, it is difficult although even on that German strategy wrote some there have been some successes and, and, and one significant one is, is the, um, the existence of a European flag Mm -hmm. as a, just an empty sign no? there's no content in it I don't think there is at least although some stories are around about the 12 stars etc it is um, a sign of, of belonging people can, can relate to but even there it was a hard fought because there is also of course resistance against this idea of a flag because people can be uh, can distrust the whole idea and see the European flag as an, a threat to their own national flag, which is why, in institutional terms, this this flag did not make it into the European treaty as some wished, but it was opposed by a few member states, including the Netherlands, uh, my country, and and also the UK. So some of these seemingly innocent things like stories or uh, the design of the Euro bank notes where I have another story about they, they reveal a lot about the tensions and, and constraints of, of, of this uh, approach Coming back to, was it April 1951 where the first people, the first six countries drew up the coal and steel community uh, what kind of what kind of conception of Europe did they have when it all started? For them, it was a, a political enterprise between France and Germany to start with, to create a new framework to deal with certain vital issues of economic policy. But they did not, they did never think that a coal and steel community was an economic panacea to the problems of their time. It was first of all a political enterprise between. French Minister Schumann, German Chancellor Adenauer, for which they found the support of a few four neighboring countries. And I think that was the, the uh, spirit of the founders. They did not, even at the time, they did not all agree on all, uh, all things. I mean, one of the six already at the time, the Netherlands, was pretty reluctant uh, to join, but they felt they had no other choice. And um, so even in this moment of birth, you can already see some of the uh, tensions that would play out much more widely later on. But I think, of course, it was also still the age of innocence and where Europe was a sign of hope. Europe was a promise 
which very much resonated with uh, public opinions uh, so shortly after the war. I was about to say the circumstances of the end of the Second World War where you had... You had, uh, and this is, of course, one of the, the glib ways of characterising it, but the the need to keep German, Germany in, but in a much reduced circumstance. France had its own imperatives because it, 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 its weakness was not just exposed through the war, but would continue to be exposed in the next 20, 30 years of, of uh, colonial decline and Jian Bian Fu and so on. Um, so it was, a, it was a very, very specific moment that this encapsulated. But did they have any plans? Were they looking beyond this simple relationship between France and Germany? Did they have any plans for the institutions that would fit around it, the, where things would be in 20, 30 years' time? Not really, I think. I mean, they had the idea that it would be the start of a great adventure, mm-hmm. to uh, quote the movie line. Um, I think that, that spirit was there, but it wasn't clearly uh, defined and when the same six countries found themselves again around the table five years later to found this time a common market, they were already changing the institutional setup. But they reinforced this idea that they were going to be together in a way indefinitely. Because the, the Coal and Steel Treaty was going to last for 50 years. It had an end date to it. So actually, 10 years ago, so it came to an end. Whereas the, the Treaty of Rome, of the common market, stretches itself out, as it were, indefinitely. So it's a different kind of uh, commitment. It's less contractual, it's more a marriage type of, of uh, engagement, which is a, is a difference from, from the point of view of the, of the political psychology, I would say. I think it would be uh, difficult to talk about Europe and its foundation without really bringing it up to date. And this was actually published a few years ago in the Netherlands. Uh, It's just been translated into English, which is why it's coming out now. Um, Quite a lot has happened in Europe in those those years. And and not least, uh, I think in 2010, you became speechwriter to Herman van Rompuy, the president of the European Council. Uh, which is almost a front row seat uh, at the crisis. Uh, what has that helped you understand, and what has this changed in the way that you uh, feel about the book and its arguments? Well, it ha- has helped me, my current position, and it is sort of privileged position, uh, the front row, as you said, has helped me to understand some of these matters better. But it, the crisis... I must say, has not fundamentally changed the way I look at the European Union. Quite on the contrary, in a way, because what I tried to do in the book, so which which indeed I, I wrote in the years before the crisis in seven and eight, is to look at how moments of great tension, of crisis, how historic events have impacted upon. Uh, European integration and in a way it's a story of about how these countries organized themselves over time in a way which enables them to deal with uncertainty and that is very new because in the old days as a word the, the Europe of the common market was all about making rules which are fixed, well, you can change them, but it's about making rules. And it 
for for enterprises for participants of economic life in a way whereas what the European Union is doing in the past 2010 but indeed even more so in the past few years is also to be able to deal with events and to take decisions which impact on the uh, the states themselves either where they have to act or where they uh, have to take decisions on, on macroeconomic or, or budgetary policy which is now very much the center of gravity of, of the political attention which um, which are different so this this crisis in a way was almost a uh, unhoped for I must say but almost a uh, real life test of how the European Union can can deal with uncertainty and it has shown I think and made clear to many more people than, than originally were ready to admit it how important the role of national leaders is in European politics because they have to sit together around European tables to take and as I said sometimes to their own disliking joint decisions to deal with these situations and that is where you have a vital connection between EU politics as in Brussels and the domestic political scene and I think this has never been as clear as in the past uh, three, four years where the fate of many a European government in, in, in debtor countries but also in others um, hinged upon European decisions so election results were uh, well not only influenced but, but sometimes even determined by a debate on what position the country should take in Europe or take Italy or Spain or Finland even where at some point the whole issue about a coalition agreement was whether yes or no they should uh, help out Portugal so there's a whole new space of European politics which is not only played out in Brussels but more and more in a sort of overall game between all countries and capitals which realize that they are a member of a club that it it matters to their political system that it matters to their citizens what happens in another country and that's new but as that's come back in or that's that's emerged as a factor the the, the importance of uh, individual capitals and individual countries and their leaders it's also exposed what for a long time uh, Europe perhaps sought to deny you may argue with that and that's German strength the fact that ultimately a lot of it comes back down to Berlin or, or Bonn as, as it used to be I think that is indeed true that um, people used to, to quip sometimes and I, I quite like that that Europe served for the French to hide their weakness mm-hmm. and for the Germans to hide their strength and this worked very well because they, they could both pretend they were more or less equal and even if Germany was economically stronger since the 70s at least French still had more sort of political weight as a uh, m- member of the uh, UN Security Council and that type of 
political power. But I think this symmetry or this full symmetry, this pretense of symmetry is no longer credible. And it's now clear to all that the, that the place of Germany is different in Europe than of any other country. Historic nuance, if you allow me, it's not the first time ever that one country is more important in the club than others. The same was true for France in the early days. Very often it was one against all. Was the goal I was going to be asking you about this next, but oh, sorry, yeah, was <laughs> was was the goal against all, all, all the others, and so. Um, but I think this this prism of German might, of course, it has very much to do with the crisis itself, and and because the focus is now so much on 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 uh, economics, financial strength. It, it shows more clearly than in other circumstances. I mean, if you look at at, uh, at foreign affairs, the, it's really not the Germans who lead the pack, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned France and the leading role that it played on uh, in the early years. Uh, of course, the the other major country in Europe that could have been expected after the war to play a leading role was Britain. France took the leading role. People would say that the European Union is a very, very different place with France having played a leading role compared to if Britain had actually decided this is the moment that we get involved with our European cousins as opposed to the standing back that it did and and joining in much later on in the process. Uh, Can you conceive... As a you know European time traveller of, of what a European what a Europe would look like if it had been Britain playing playing that role, you're doing the nose of Cleopatra question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if it had been slightly different shape, what would have happened? <laughs> I'm, I'm a no, journal- no, no, I'm no. a journalist. I ask these questions. No, it's an interesting question, and, and um, but I hardly do hardly ever do what if questions. What I try to do is to show that history at is open and that many of the many decisions could have been taken differently or the course of history could have gone in another direction I think that's important to also when you look at the past to reopen that that it's not predetermined and that for the same reason the future is not predetermined either but on the UK more specifically I think it would have been really different yes um, it would have been I think the institutions would have been set up differently from the start. And the Brits actually did not join for the reason that they were... uh, They didn't like the idea of supranational institutions. And even if that was watered down in the process, there are some elements of it which which made it into into the treaties, like Accord and the predecessor of the Commission of High Authority in 1950. It's also a pity because when the United Kingdom did join, it was at, at a much more difficult moment also for them. As uh, MP Mark Reckless uh, said this morning, it was perhaps at this nation's lowest ebb. Mm-hmm. And the UK was then joining in what it earlier on had perceived to be the losers' club. Mm-hmm. Those who had lost the war, whereas... Yes. The United Kingdom was... The 50s and 60s worked out slightly differently, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I think it, it uh, not only was maybe a pity for the way... Uh, for the, the early years of the European Union, but also 
it made it much more difficult for the United Kingdom, or it had an impact on the psychology of this uh, of, of 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 the moment when finally your country crossed the uh, or the uh, threshold. Mm-hmm. Uh, another formulation of the interests of the of the of the big three countries that we've just been speaking of was that uh, France seeks a reincarnation of itself through Europe. Uh, Germany seeks or sought redemption and Britain seeks a seat at the table. Now at the minute obviously uh, a reincarnation of France at a time when it feels tangibly weaker especially if you look at the relations between Merkel and Hollande uh, we seem to be probably past the point where Germany is seeking redemption and Britain at home seems to be weighing up the costs of that seat at the table um, is this a formulation that you think is uh, is is well past its its sell by date? I think you're you're partly right that the the strong initial motives are no longer there to the same extent. It's clear for France that it it's now very hard to conceive Europe as a big France, which they hoped it could become, at least until 1989. And I think there the German reunification and uh, the end of the Cold War was was a major turning point. Um, I also agree that, and that's even more recent, that this idea of a seat at the table for London, um, which even if sometimes some parties in the opposition played with the idea of leaving, never before has a governing party done so, as clearly as the Conservatives now play with this idea, which is new but you can still feel that the way the yes argument is is framed here in the UK is very much of we need to keep a seat at the table so the the, the frame is still there because it's surely we, we're not going to walk out of the of, of the internal market and and be part of that like Norway and Switzerland when the rules are set without us being there so yeah. for instance, the that machine that Exactly. That model is discarded quickly because you need to be there or you don't apply the rules. I don't agree with uh, your analysis of of the German situation where I think they still feel very strongly this historic responsibility uh, of being uh, a democratic successor to a Nazi regime. And I think there the crisis, in a way, is, is a proof of that. Because... I think any German Chancellor feels that it is very important for his or today her country to be perceived by the other nations in Europe as friendly. And this is still true today. Of course, the memories of the past are further away, but um, I think the fear in Berlin for all prejudices which sometimes flare up now in the crisis. I mean, you've seen the cartoons in the Greek press and vice versa in the German press, of course, um, that this very much is, is part of the, um, the political constraints and, and psychology of how, how people in Berlin look, look at the European Union. Is this just a, a, a simple question of the, the seeds of the EU's problems being contained in the fact that once you draw more and more countries in, 
all of those initial calculations about ceding sovereignty in return for a way of decision making that 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 uh, brought results, etc. Um, do you think that that's simply where we are? We've got 27, 28 members now. Uh, the euro has got 17 different countries trying to form a single currency zone uh, and you know forming a currency zone between two or three countries is difficult enough but when you bring in economies as different as the the German the Finnish the Irish the Portuguese the Greek the Cypriot the Italian uh, the seeds of Europe's troubles are in this idea that that you can just keep on expanding why well, I'm, I'm not sure that because the idea of expansion has also been there uh, from the start and I think the the plurality and the diversity of the membership is true, makes it more urgent to reflect on how also institutionally the European Union can remain to be something which is not on the way to become a federal state nor just a club of sovereign states but which is something in between and in my book, I, I very much try to explain that this, in a way, has always been the case. That what makes it work is sometimes difficult to, to grasp, but it's not only the sort of supranational proto-federal institutions which ensure that all can apply or all commit to the, to the same rules, but it's also a sort of invisible glue, political glue of the fact of being member. And the fact that there are more members has sometimes also made it easier to, to find a sort of internal balances uh, within the club. Um, if I think back of the old days, the Netherlands and Belgium fought hard to get the UK in because they felt safer in a club with three big countries instead of only two and also if you, if you look at the way the European Union in terms of, of policies and, and competences has developed it has often been as a response to, to a new membership even when the UK and Denmark and Ireland joined it was decided by the then uh, nine leaders to engage in, in new fields like environmental policy which at the time 73 the Danes very much favored and also regional policy which is an indirect result of the UK entry even if it's decried today in this country but the reason being that um, agricultural funds went not to the UK because of course you importing food and then some other device had to be found to make sure that at least some of the sort of European money also ended up in, in 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 Great Britain. So this this diversity of membership is I think very much part of what Europe is, is very constitutive of 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 the European Union. Because even with six it was never going to be the end of the, of sovereign states. Even with the six where you had France and Germany which are totally different countries. I mean, you should not underestimate the French and the Germans. They just don't understand each other. They didn't understand each other after the war. I'm not talking about all these wars, but even... And they still don't... Essentially, they don't understand each other. And so, for me, it does not make 
a fundamental difference that you have more members because the membership was always to be a, a category of, of plurality. Is the European Union, is it fit for purpose for all of the challenges that are going to be thrown up by the next 20, 30, 40 years? I'm a little bit worried you say, you say that it sounds very complicated. I think undoubtedly, and reading, reading your book only made it, it... It exposed me to more nuances and complications than I'd ever troubled myself to, to consider. But uh... Well, is it fit for purpose? I mean, uh, sorry, is it fit for purpose? The, I think the, the purpose of the countries, the governments who are members of the European Union in the end is still the same. It is to secure the security and prosperity of their citizens. And they think that some of that work they can do on their own, and rightly so, and some of the work they have to do together. That can be building a market or making sure you have connections between gas pipelines or whatever. And even on the security front, where of course after the war it was very strongly about peace, but in a way that still plays a role even if, if less clearly. Certainly does in eastern countries. It does in eastern countries, it does in countries knocking on the door uh, as we speak in the in the Western Balkans where wars were fought very recently. And um, the others are also aware of that. And they it's also in, in the interest of, of those in, in, in in Germany, Finland, and even on an island like Ireland, that you would have some form of continental uh, stability stretching all the way to the Balkans and not have end up with uh, Syria is already much too close in a way. But I think to remain fit for purpose, there is more thinking needed in Europe, in all the capitals, in Brussels, about how Europeans are going to make their money in 10 years' time from now. And um, there's great revolutions going on. Think of the shale gas revolution in the United States or all the emerging, now emerged markets. And it still seems sometimes difficult within Europe as a whole to, to muster the sense of urgency uh, faced with this uh, great economic challenge and how are we going to make a living in 10, 20 years time uh, for now and I, I would say that, that that requires a lot of uh, innovative thinking and that's one of the things where the European Commission has a, which is many great things but which is also a, a sort of great think tank should really put the best minds uh, at work and to uh, to come up with uh, proposals which member countries can then uh, look at but it also requires a um, yeah a growing awareness of the Europeans at large and large speaking that this challenge uh, is there Finally, what are you working on now? Are you working on any other work similar to this, or is it all back to the day job? Well, the day job tends to be a night job included, <laughs> so there's there's not much time for the night job and for uh, for a next book. But of course, uh, I scribble my notes, and uh, mm -hmm. we'll see what I can do when I left office mm -hmm. uh, in a year and a half from now. Uh, 
I do think that yeah, there is a lot of stories to tell and and um, and reflection to do on this very particular moment, mm-hmm. which is really unprecedented um, of the past years, and that Europeans and then especially those this peoples who share the Europe have never been aware as they are today that they belong to this union mm. and it has been a very painful uh, discovery for many of them for different reasons but um, it will be interesting to see also in the years ahead how and whether European public opinions come to terms with this fact that Europe is not only a matter of advantages and free travel etc but also a matter of 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 belonging and to some extent of of identity so there is things to write and reflect about perhaps even clearer in uh, retrospect than than now hopefully yes luke thanks very much thanks thank you And that was Luke van Middelaar, the author of The Passage to Europe, an intriguing look at the political philosophy that underpins the European project. You can find plenty more books on European subjects on newbooksnetwork.com or subscribe directly to New Books in European Studies through iTunes or other podcast software. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thank you for listening.